Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. Hey, good morning, you guys. Welcome to Hope Church. It's good to see you. Good to worship with you this morning and good to be together. Um, If you were here last Sunday, you might remember I opened the service by by inviting you to pray with me for the kids that were at camp, right? And those kids came back, uh, all of them. (laughs) They all survived. And uh, it was amazing, including my own. And I just want to say thank you for praying in that moment. And for those of you that prayed throughout the week, thanks for doing that. the stories that have come out of their camp experience have been amazing. And we'll, we'll get to hear some of those. I think we're going to be recording some videos, and we'll get to hear some of those over the next couple weeks. But, um, yeah, the youth group met in my backyard on Wednesday uh, after they got back, and I made, uh, we made pizzas for them, and they, they just shared their stories, and there were testimonies, and some of them were so beautiful and just amazing. And so, again, just I wanted to thank you for praying for my kids and for all the kids that went, and it, it, it was meaningful. And really good. So thanks. Um, so if you don't know me, my name is Chris Matley, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And we're we're in a series right now where we're talking through the life of David. Um, and uh, if you don't know this about me, I, when I was younger, uh, in 18, I went off to a Bible college in Dallas, Texas, and I was there for a couple years. And um, when I first got there, my f- my first semester there, I fell in with a group of guys. They were kind of kind of rough guys, and. Uh, there for a variety of reasons. We were all there to be worship leaders, actually, is what it was. But um, but this particular crowd, they were kind of uh, kind of tough and sometimes not the nicest. And I, I remember this one day we were kind of like hanging out in the lobby and laughing and joking. And there was this guy. Okay, I'm just going to tell you about this guy. And I have to act something out for just for you to understand like what happened in this moment. But there was this guy, and he. He walked everywhere on campus. He lived on campus like all of, we, all of us did, and he would walk across to go, and there was a lot of walking because the campus was very spread out. And you know when you walk and you swing your arms this way, right? This one guy is the only person I've ever seen that does this. When he walks, I'm just gonna show you, he would walk like this, like this, right? And he'd walk everywhere, and he walked so fast and so aggressively, and it was like everybody knew who he was, everybody noticed him. And this one morning in the lobby of like the gathering space, like someone started talking about him and it turned into like they were joking about him and pretty soon everyone was laughing and someone was going like this, right? And, and imitating it and just then he like walked in. And I, like, I don't know how the other guys felt. I think they were just like, oh, this is even funnier because he saw us making fun of them. I was mortified. Like I just was like, oh, this is not how my parents raised me to be, like this person, you know? And I just felt so horrible. This is like two months into a three-month semester, and I just, for two weeks, I just agonized about it, and I was like, oh. Finally, I was like, you know what? I gotta find this guy and make this right. Like, I gotta tell him. Part of it was like a desire to, you know, uh, make things right for me being a part of this, and also was it, like, I wanted to just tell him, like, it wasn't really me. I wasn't making fun of you, you know what I mean? I just happened to be there, and, but, but my, you know, I. I, I was guilty. I was there. I didn't stop it. You know, I didn't, I didn't say, hey, guys, this was wrong, you know. And so I, I determined I'm going to find this guy. And all of a sudden, it was like he couldn't be found. I, it was like before that, ever, before I had that thought, he was everywhere, just walking everywhere on the campus, just like, you know, you couldn't miss him. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden, I just, for two weeks, I couldn't find him. I never ran into him. 
And so I started asking, like, hey, what is this guy's name? I thought his name was Brian. And I was asking someone, he's like, do you know, you know this guy Brian? And, and this one day in the lobby of the men's dorm, I was like, hey, because we only had two weeks until we all went home. And I was like, I got to find this guy. I was like, hey, do you know that guy Brian? Who? You know, Brian, the guy, the guy that walks. Do you know Brian? They're like, I don't, you know, these two guys I was talking to were like, I don't, I don't, I, I've never even heard of this guy. You know, Brian, he, you know, he walks like this, you know, and just then, as I'm doing this, he walks in, and I'm like, and he looks at me and goes, and just, like, power walks out, and I was like, oh my gosh, and I was like, I went, Brian, Brian, and one of the guys goes, that's Peter, I was like, my gosh, I didn't even know his right name, you know, it was horrible, like, I felt so bad, and I just didn't have the courage to find him again, and like, it never resolved itself. To this day, he thinks I was making fun of him twice from the way he walks, and I feel horrible about it just to this day. And so here's my question as we ponder these, this story of David. Here's my question for you is, have you ever done something that caused someone harm that you wanted to go back and fix, but you just missed your opportunity? Have you ever had something like that happen? I just, to this day, I mean, that was 25 years ago, and I still think of this guy, Peter, and I'm like, man. And I just... As I'm talking, telling you the story right now, I just had this thought, like, what if, this would be so my life, like, what if 25 years later, he was like, you know what, I gotta find this guy, Chris Matley, and he Googled me, and he's watching the live stream right now, and he tuned in to see me doing this, I was like, oh my gosh, you know what I mean? Ah, oh, that would be my life, I tell you. All right, so, we're in this series looking at the life of David, right? And what we're doing is we're, we're reading through his life and exploring the ups and the downs. Last week, so if you were here last week, you heard about just the, the, just the incredible fall of David. After all of these victories in his life, and after being described as a man after God's own heart, he, he saw this woman that wasn't his wife, and he, he had an affair with her, and he arranged for her husband, and when she got, got pregnant, this is Bathsheba, she, he arranged for his, her husband to be murdered, and, and, you know, and he sinned, he, he grieved God, and, and in the end, he, he came clean when the prophet Nathan approached him, right, and, and revealed his, that he knew about his sin. And he came clean, and he repented before God. But, you know, how many of you know this? That, that we, we, can, we choose our mistakes. We choose those things. I chose to be in that group of guys and not say a word when they were making fun of this guy. I chose that. But we don't get to choose the outcome. We don't get to choose the consequences of our mistakes. Those just unfold before us. So now we're going to see, as we read further, we're going to see some of the consequences of his mistakes kind of unfolding in his life. Now, we're, we're leaping forward several years. His sons now, many of his sons are starting to grow up and grow older. Um, and David's still king in Israel. I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you kind of like the highlight reel of some of these things, rather, because it covers a lot, of, a lot of ground. It's like chapter 13 through 17 or something. So I'm going to give you just some little, little highlights. Um, and, and just for context, I want to share this. David... If you, it never says this explicitly in one place, but if you go through the life of David and you count, he had, it seems like he had eight wives. He also had uh, a lot of other women in his life, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but he had, for sure, he had eight wives, and we know their names. He had at least 18 kids. He might have had more, um, but for sure, we know the names of 18 of his children. Can I just say this? This was not God's intention. This is what, not what God intended. When we read these stories, the information is presented in such a matter-of-fact way, uh, you could make the mistake of reading it and thinking God was like, yeah, that's just how it was. This is not what God intended. This, this, 
this lifestyle of um, misogyny is what it is, and um, that David is, is leading with, with eight wives. It, in fact, if you read in the Gospel of Matthew and you read the words of Jesus in chapter 18 when the religious leaders of the day confront him about the topic of human relationship, in particular between a man and woman, he refers to all of this and he says, it was not that way in the beginning. And he knows the way it was in the beginning because he was there. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was there in the beginning. Everything that was created was created by him. It was not that way in the beginning. And, and, this is, and, and it's easy for us to look in judgment back at this Bronze Age people and say, oh, look at how backwards they were, eight wives, that's ridiculous. But, and we think we're so sophisticated, but we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We, we define for ourselves what we think things should be when it's God that is saying, I, I seek to define. I, I make the definitions. There's a way that seems right to us, but in the end, it leads to death. You know, I was, I was drinking some tea this morning. I was drinking this honest tea early this morning when I got up, and there was this bottle cap. You ever look at the bottle caps, these, and they have these pithy little sayings? And it says this, For there remains in this space-age universe the possibility that man's way is not always best. Rachel Carson. I don't know who that is, but doggone it, she's right. Is that not right? Man's way is not always the best. We were singing that song just now that Savannah was leading. Um, Your way is better. Boy, that is the understatement of the century, right? God's way is better. If we could somehow find his way and conform ourselves to his definition, um, gosh, we'd be so much better off. Okay, so let's keep going. So in chapter 13, here's what we have. We have David... And there's three sons that we're really kind of concerning ourselves with today. Solomon is just kind of on the periphery. We know a lot about Solomon. But he had two sons, Absalom, and he had this son, Amnon. Okay? And part of the shadow that's cast by David's very poor choices in relationships, eight wives and multiple children, part of the shadow that's cast across his family that continues on, you see this in the life of Solomon, is, is a real absentee kind of father, fatherhood to these children. In fact, a lot of these stories, you read these things that happen to his kids, and you can't help, I mean, as a dad, I can't help but ask, where is David in this story? Like, while all this is going down, right? Here's where we begin. Absalom was the third son of David from his wife, Micah. Absalom had a, a full sister named Tamar, all right? So by Micah, David had these two children, Absalom and Tamar, okay? And then he had this other son, Amnon. So this is Absalom's half-brother. Amnon, it tells us in the story, I'm not going to read the text here, it's actually really graphic, but Amnon develops this fixation with Tamar, and he ends up engineering a situation where she becomes trapped by him, and he ends up uh, assaulting her and raping her. And, and when this news comes out, King David is furious. Of course, these are his kids. This is horrific, disgusting behavior. And he's, he's, it says he's furious, but does nothing. He does nothing. And I think when I read this, I'm so reminded that, that passivity, just passive behavior, is we should never mistake that for forgiveness. This is not, this is not forgiveness. This is not, um, this is not a virtue to do nothing in the sight of evil. In fact, when you read, have you ever read the, the letter by James? Uh, coincidentally, Jesus' half-brother um, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's this letter, James. And James was Jesus' half-brother, and um, he, he has all kinds of wisdom in his little short letter to the church. 
uh, in Jerusalem. And this is what he says in James chapter 4, verse 17. I think I have it on the screen too. It says this, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And, and if you were here last week, you heard me talk about how, you know, in our kind of puritanically inspired kind of framework, cultural framework, we think of sin as items on a, on a, on a naughty list, right? Like a, if there's a book of rules, sin is don't do these things. But actually the, the ancient understanding for this term is, is brokenness. It's, it's something that has been bent out of shape away from its original design. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, you're walking in the same brokenness that's being displayed, and you're contributing to it. Just like when I was in that group of guys, and there was, and, and people were making fun of a human being for the way he walked, and I, I did nothing. I was contributing to it, right? And this is what David did. He contributed to the brokenness in his family. And so Absalom was even angrier than David, and he was angrier at David because he did nothing. And he waited for two years. And then finally he takes matters into his own hands. And we see in chapter 13 that he finds a way, he engineers a situation and he kills his brother Amnon. And this causes this enormous rift because David really loved Amnon for all his faults. And he was faulty. <laughs> um, he really loved Amnon. And, and Absalom, in the, in the absence of nothing being done, he takes matters into his own hands and he kills him. And there's this huge rift now in the relationship between Absalom and David. We should never under, underestimate the power of unforgiveness. So in chapters 14 and 15, here's what happens. You leap forward another couple of years, and Absalom now begins to uh, uh, engineer this rebellion against David. He decides, you can see the train of thought. You can see, I, my, my dad is a king that does nothing when injustice happens. Therefore, it would be better for me to be king. And he begins to inspire other people to join him in his cause. It's a rebellion, right? Um, and you can see his, him making plans to overthrow his father. And, you know, it's possible that he, maybe he lost some respect for his father when he didn't deal with Amnon. Maybe, maybe he sees baby Solomon coming up, you know, and all the favor. That's Bathsheba's son, by the way, Solomon. All the favor that David is pouring on him. Either way, he doesn't see any way, any path for redemption, so he takes power for himself. And when we look at this kind of this panoramic view, if you just take a step back and you read all these chapters found in First and Second Samuel, you, you see how um, unforgiveness just becomes this through line. You know, there's revenge, there's resentment, but it's unforgiveness really that's a driving force in all this, this dysfunction. And and here's what we know is, from reading these things, is that unforgiveness is always rooted in fear. There's fear at the heart of it. It's a fear that we will somehow be made weaker for not acting on our anger and exact revenge. So, you know, when you've probably heard this passage where God said, he said to the people of Israel, he said, vengeance is mine, it belongs to me. That could sound like an angry God, but actually what it is is it's a loving father saying, you cannot carry this burden. You, you can't carry it. You weren't designed to carry it. Unforgiveness is fear that we will appear to be weaker if we don't act on the thing that has harmed us, or if we don't act out against this, this offense that we're carrying. But this is, this is the radical act that God is calling us to, is to surrender our desire and our perceived right to do that and let him carry the weight of it. That's a big deal. 
It's a big deal. It changes things. In the words of perhaps the greatest fictional philosopher of all time, my good friend Master Yoda, he said this, fear leads to anger, and anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. Good job, Master Yoda. Good job. All right, let's move on. This is chapter 16. Um, so here's, what, here, here's where we get to the nitty-gritty, okay? This is our story for today. He, it says, he was also getting counsel from David's advisor, Ahithophel. Have you heard of this guy, Ahithophel? So this is the guy that has been advising David from the beginning. This is like an old-school, like, kind of elder in David's court. And it says in 2 Samuel chapter 16, it says, Now in those days, the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires after God. In other words, this was a, a powerful voice in David's life kingdom of Israel. When this guy spoke, it was as if God was speaking. And that was how both David and Absalom regarded Ahithophel's advice. But something interesting happens. If you read 2 Samuel chapter 15 and you see Absalom forming this rebellion, check this out. This is what happens. This is 15 verse 12. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. For some reason, Ahithophel jumps over and joins Absalom, right? Now, David is really saddened when this happens. Of course, Ahithophel was this, like, really powerful character in David's life. And, and, and he's really upset. And Absalom uses Ahithophel. Um, in fact, David, David begins to pray to God, use Ahithophel to give my son bad advice. This is his prayer in 2 Samuel 15. He says, now David had been told Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, oh Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. He's praying that the whole thing will, will fall apart. So David begins to strategize and he calls, he calls a summit. He calls the leaders that are still in league with him um, and he calls his trusted friend Hushai. This is what it says in 2 Samuel 15, 32. Um, it says this, when David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, check that out. So in the place where people used to worship God, instead they're now plotting against each other. This, this is what unforgiveness does to people. They don't even see the irony. It's just presented as just bare fact. In the place where people used to worship God, now people are plotting against one another. Hushai the archite was there to meet him, his robe torn and dust on his head. And so what that would mean, that was a symbol, right? So if you, if you were in mourning, you would tear a little piece of cloth on your robe and you'd sprinkle dust on your head. That was a symbol to the people that saw you. Hey, I'm in mourning over something. I'm grieving something. And David recognized that, that Hushai was grieving the loss of this kingdom. He saw that David's kingdom was slipping out of his fingers. And David said, if you go with me, you will just burden me. In other words, you, you've already given up hope. You're just going to be a burden to me. But here's a purpose that you can serve. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king... I was your father's servant in the past, but now I will be your servant. Then you can help me by frustrating Ahithophel's advice. So what's happening here? So Absalom has this great advisor in Ahithophel who has for some reason decided to betray David. And now David is conspiring and he says to Hushai, go to him and pretend to be his advisor as well. And you can be my spy in the camp. You can be my Trojan horse. It says, so David's friend Hushai arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom was entering the city. Meanwhile, Absalom... And all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And Hushai comes, David's friend, and went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king! 
Long live the king. That's not quite what David told him to tell him, but it works. He's in. Like, he's in the inside. Absalom is stoked, and it just goes right to his ego. It seems like sometimes for us, when we have unforgiveness, it, it so clouds our thoughts that our thoughts become cloudy in other areas, too. Have you ever noticed that? Right? You know, we see again and again in New Testament writing that the presence, the evidence that the Holy Spirit is working in our minds and in our hearts is the presence of reasonable and rational thinking. So, it follows that when we have unreasonable and unrational thinking, if we have uh, fearful thoughts, those are areas that we have not yet surrendered to the Holy Spirit, right? And this is what's happening here. Absalom just sees Hushai and, and thinks nothing of it and goes, oh, great, another guy on my side. Totally believes him. He's on the team. And then it says, Absalom said to Ahithophel, give us your advice. What should we do? And Ahithophel answered, this next part's in the Bible. I just want to tell you about it. This is in the Bible. I'm not making this up, all right? This happened. Ahithophel answers, and it's horrible. This is, this, this is horrible what, what he's about to say. He says, lie with your father's concubines. Okay, let me, hang on a second. All right, let me explain what's happening here. So I told you that David had at least eight wives that we know of, right? He also has, there's these women in his life, and the Bible uses this term concubine, okay? And let me explain what that means. Because a lot of times people think prostitute or, or something along those lines. Uh, so if you were a powerful person in a Near Eastern culture in the Bronze Age, um, and by person I mean man, of course, that's obvious, um, they had all the power. And so if you were one of these men and you, you could uh, accept wives, and, and having wives was to honor the person that this, or the family that this wife was coming from, to accept into your household a concubine was like a second-tier wife. Now, you wouldn't necessarily even have physical relationships with these women. You could, but you wouldn't necessarily. You were just not honoring the families that they came from in the same way, okay? So these people would be a part of your household. Uh, David had somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 of these women in his household. Yeah, he did that to himself, so that's on him. But um, uh, so, and, and when he fled Jerusalem, he left all of these women behind to run the household, okay? They're running, they're running things. Women generally run things. I'm just telling you. That's, that's how it works. They, they kind of run things. And, and they're running the ship while he's gone. And Ahithophel tabs, tells Absalom, go, go to these women. Go to this household of women. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to assault them and defile them. These are the women that he left to care for the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench in your father's nostrils. In other words, you've done the worst thing that you could do. Everybody will hear it. Do you remember that graphic that I showed last week, the, the, the city of David? The, the palace sits kind of like on the upper area, and there's all the housing below, right? Everybody looked up every day, and you could see. It was like looking up the hill and seeing, like, uh, there's the palace right there. He's saying, do it so everyone can see you doing it. And the hands of everyone around you will be strengthened. In other words, this will make you more powerful. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he did this. He lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This is horrific, right? It's horrible. And, and the people that saw this were struck with fear. And it, it, this, this, is like, this is like 1930s Germany, you know, when, when Hitler and his cronies, they ride in and they begin dismantling the, the German government, and everybody's just struck with fear. We see this throughout history. These kind of things happen. And, and everybody, 
they interpret it as you better fall in or be crushed by the weight of it. And that's what happens in Israel. Everyone kind of falls in around Absalom. And then Ahithophel doubles down on his advice on how to finish off David. Here's what he says. Ahithophel says to Absalom, I would choose 12, after he just did this horrible thing, he said, choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak and I would strike him with terror. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. But here's where David's plan comes into, comes into play. Check this out. He says, but Absalom said, summon Hushai. So we can hear what he has to say. In other words, let me just run this past Hushai. Because he's, he's been around a little bit longer than Ahithophel. Let's see what he has to say. When Hushai came to him, Absalom said, Ahithophel has given this advice. What should we do? Uh, should we do what he says? If not, give us your opinion. Hushai replied to Absalom, the, av- the advice of Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. And for some reason, Absalom treats Hushai's advice as more, more potent, and he disregards Ahithophel. When Ahithophel discovers his advice has been not taken, he's mortified, because um, he realizes this. If David wins, if David wins, if he holds the kingdom, he will be found guilty of treason, of conspiracy, of attempted murder. Look at the, the situation. He, I mean, he just engineered... Uh, he gave this guy advice to have sex with all his concubines in the presence. I mean, this is like, he's a war criminal now, right? What happened to Ahithophel? What happened? It describes him as a man after God's own heart. What, how did he drift so far? When Ahithophel saw that his advice not be followed, he saddled his donkey, he went to his hometown, he put his house in order, and he hanged himself. What happened to Ahithophel? Check this out. So if you're doing your reading and you read back, here's what we find. Ahithophel, what do we know about him? In 2 Samuel chapter 23, it says, Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. Eliam is Ahithophel's son. And if you go back a little further, it tells us that Bathsheba is the daughter of Eliam. Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. You see what David did to his family, and Ahithophel never forgot. David did this. He dishonored his granddaughter. As a consequence, her son died as a newborn. Their family was destroyed. His son-in-law was murdered. Everything was taken apart, and when Ahithophel had his chance, he engineered a situation where David's son did far worse to him, right? This is what happens when we hold on to grievances, when we hold on to unforgiveness. If we read, so last week we read this. This, this is what, do you remember what Nathan said to David about this very thing? When David was caught in his sin, Nathan said this to David. He said, you are the man that did this. This is what the Lord, uh, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I put you in charge and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing this evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Check this out. He says, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. And before your own eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, right? 
and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. This is 20 years before this happened. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And this is David's response before this even happened, before this came to pass. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. He sought forgiveness from God. Because forgiveness, it opens the door to reconciliation. And, and David was reconciled to God, but he wasn't rescued from, the, from the, um, the fallout of his sin. Whereas unforgiveness, it opens the door to dysfunction and destruction. And we see that in Ahithophel. He fell because he refused to, to let go. He held on to that grievance, and when the chance came, he destroyed David. Here's, our, here's the big idea that I want to leave us with today, and it's this right here. We never want to underestimate the power of forgiveness. And to say it in the reverse, we never want to underestimate the power of unforgiveness. You know, when you type, this is kind of a funny thing, when you type, have you ever said the word unforgiveness? Have you ever said that or used that in conversation or to describe something? When you type the word unforgiveness in a document, like pages or a Word document, the little red underline shows up. You know why? It's telling you it's misspelled, right? If you type unforgiveness. It's not misspelled. It's just telling you it's not a word found in the Oxford Dictionary. That's because only Christians use this word. It's a concept that is unique to us. Forgiveness is not. People forgive. You don't have to be a Christian to forgive. And you can talk about uh, the lack of forgiveness. But if you say unforgiveness, it's, it's a negative posture, right? It's a, and, and it's a negative state. And we're the only ones that believe in this negative state. But it's real, isn't it? To walk in unforgiveness is a real thing. To posture yourselves, not because you know, the world looks at forgiveness as a positive action or a neutral state. But God says there's a positive action and the opposite is a negative state. To not forgive is to be in unforgiveness. And this is what it does to us. It corrupts, it destroys, it breaks down. This story is a, is a wake-up call for us. If you read this, we should hear it as a wake-up call. Make an appointment with someone that you have unforgiveness with. There's no, let me just say that there's no right season for reconciliation. The right season is today. It's right now. David waited, and look what it did. He waited two years, and his son killed his other son. He waited more years, and his son plotted against him. He waited more years, and this trusted advisor plotted against him. The right time for reconciliation, the right time for forgiveness, the right time to make things right with people is right now. Do it today. And to do it, here's what we have to do. We have to let go of the fantasy that we have that the outcome of these conversations will be something that we're in control of. I had this, this opportunity before Amy and I got married. I had this, there was a, a person that I had, I had an offense with, and I was carrying it. And I had a really good friend advise me, do not carry this into your marriage. And I remember saying, I, I don't know how to let that go. I don't know how to let it go. And he said, here's what you do, is you imagine the fantasy that you have in your head of, of having a conversation with that person and the, and the outcome being something that you can control and let go of that. And I did. And it was like it just went away. And I, and I reached out to that person and I forgave them. And you know what? He was right because their response was not good. <laughs> it, was, it was not like ideal. But I was done. My work was done. And I moved on letting go of that fantasy. That's, that's what we have to do. And then we have to do the second thing. We, we have to acknowledge that forgiveness is sometimes too great a burden for us to carry on our own. 
It's too big. It's too heavy an object for us to, to carry. And in those cases, we need, to, we need Jesus to do the forgiving through us, don't we? This is what it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. It says right at the beginning of the Gospel of John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. What if I told you that you'd just been given a cancer diagnosis? You have a cancer that's growing inside you. It's going to eat your bones. It's going to change the way you think. It's going to distort your thoughts and your feelings. And it's ultimately going to destroy your, your life. It's fatal. But what if I also told you there's a doctor that specializes in that cancer, and he lives right here in town, and his phone is always on. You can call him 24-7. In fact, you could call him right now. And he, he is the only one with the medicine that could fix that cancer. Would you wait until next week? Right? Would you wait a month? Would you wait a year? No. You'd run out into the lobby right now. Say, I can call him right now. I'm going to call him. That cancer is unforgiveness. It's the things that we hold on to. And the doctor is Jesus. In case you didn't get the metaphor. It's... Let me leave you with this verse. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, where Paul tells us exactly how to take the next step. He tells us this. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Now, a lot of times Paul says these things, and he just says them so matter-of-factly we can miss the part where he tells us how to do it. He says these things, and I, it's like, okay, sure. You know, he, get rid of all anger. Okay, you know, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Okay, so we just do it? Thanks, Paul. We, that's, that's it? We just do it? No, he tells us how. He says, just as in Christ God forgave you. That's the key. We're in Jesus, and Jesus is in us. So what we do is we say a prayer where we invite him to do the forgiving through us. There it is, right there. That's how he does it. We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find a home. Please check out discoverhope.church click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers and donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the give option on our website or text any amount to 831-800-2060. Thanks again for tuning in.